Well, I'm very pleased to be here with you, especially as Google Maps still says I'm 50 yards away from the church. Um, uh, Andy, uh, I, I overlapped with Andy at Theological College, and um, uh, he very kindly came down and helped us with the Bournemouth and Poole Convention, uh, doing music and the sorts of things he's, he's doing now. Um, and so I'm very glad to, uh, to come and help him out here. <clears throat> I'm a Bristolian by origin, and um, I think I see uh, my sending church was Christchurch Clifton to the ministry, so I think from one stranger to others, welcome. But uh, let's uh, do keep the Bible open um, in this passage that we have before us, 1 Kings chapter 17, and uh, we'll pray, and it's a privilege to consider that together this evening. Gracious Father, we thank you that we can open your word and we can hear uh, your words of life to us. And we pray that you would speak to us through your word by your Holy Spirit as we open our hearts to receive uh, what it is that you need to do in us to shape us into the image of Christ. Amen. So the year is 1849, it's the 22nd of December. Perhaps the greatest of all of Russia's novelists, Fyodor Dostoevsky, stands in the snow. Uh, he has any moments to live. He's there, ready to be executed. The soldiers have um, had the call to present arms, and they're waiting for the next command to fire. And then suddenly, someone arrives on horseback, and there is a discussion. And a word has come from Tsar Nicholas I, the Emperor of all Russia. The execution is not to happen after all. It's a word of authority, a word of power a word of transformation. And as we begin our thoughts into the life of Elijah, um, our passage begins with an actor that bursts onto the stage. We might think that that actor is uh, Elijah himself, who's, uh, who kind of looms large in one kings. He's like an Obi-Wan Kenobi figure who just pitches up at Mount Carmel and then disappears again, and pitches up in Naboth's vineyard and disappears. He's a giant, isn't he? A colossus of the Old Testament. He represents the, uh, the law on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord Jesus Christ and Moses. But actually, he is not the main actor of the passage. The main actor, the central actor, is the Word of God. Verse 1, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, there will be neither dew nor rain except at my word. So Elijah's word, but the word of the Lord behind that. Verse 2, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Verse 5. So he did what the Lord had told him. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go. Verse 10. So he went. Verse 14. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. <coughs> Verse 16. The jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. And then the book end. Verse 24, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. So just as the word of the Lord uh, shapes the passage, it's going to structure our headings um, this afternoon. First of all, be warned of God's judgment according to his word. Be warned of God's judgment according to his word. Now, if you'd gone to Israel and you'd stop little Jenny getting off the school coach with her cello, um, and stickers all over it and you, you said to her Jenny what have you been learning about in RE 
she'd probably have, have replied, well, we don't tend to do all that much about, you know, God and Yahweh and that sort of thing. But it's more about similarities between major religions. We do all the ceremonies, and they're all about the different sacrificial systems. And I can tell you that the Temple of Baal has Phoenician-style pillars and not pillars in the style of the Greek Philistines. And then if you'd leant over the garden fence and spoken to her, her father and asked if he worshipped Yahweh, he'd probably have said, well, you know, all that stuff was important uh, when we were a bit younger as a nation and we'd just been rescued out of Egypt um, and uh, we, we gained an identity. But now we've grown up and developed. Now we're much more uh, inclusive, sophisticated, uh, open, tolerant, progressive. And people worship a range of different gods in a variety of ways uh, in modern Israel. And you see, on the surface, things have been good for some time. Omri had built Samaria, his impressive capital, uh, on, on a hill. He'd married his son Ahab to Jezebel, um, who was from the, um, uh, the, the, the nearby local <coughs> economic superpower of Phoenicia, the trading power. Economics were good. Boom and bust were over. Moab had been brought under Israelite control. Uh, they, they were paying tribute. The balance of payments was right. Everybody had a little something extra jingling in their pockets. There was a housing boom of well-appointed luxury townhouses with ivory not seen since the days of King Solomon. Bel himself was a god of fertility, of prosperity for flocks and crops and cattle and the god of rain and the god of the earth and a god of sexual freedom. As far as the people are concerned, was not to like. But then, in one abrupt verse, everything is turned on its head and the situation has entirely changed. Now I'll bet that if you've got a car, whether it's new or second hand, you've never read the manual for your car. Um, I've certainly never read the manual for any of the cars that I've ever owned. All I've done is simply throw, throw it in the glove compartment uh, in case it's needed. Um, but in it, there are explanations, among other things, for the warning symbols that are on the dashboard of your car. And uh, you better pay attention to them, because when those warning signals come on, um, it, it, there's a situation um, that, that, you, that you need to address. Because if the light comes on and you don't pay any attention to it, and the water's leaked out of your radiator, your engine's going to melt, isn't it, on, when you're on the way down to Cornwall on holiday, and it's all hot, and you'll be one of those cars at the side of the road that really waves at as they go by. Um, or you'll, there's a, there'll be a smell of burning smoke, and you'll get to Sainsbury's, and you realise that you've left the handbrake on all the way there. And that was what that symbol meant. Disaster will strike. Now, Jenny's dad is not wrong in thinking that the time of the Exodus is an important one for the people of Israel. Um, it was a time when God rescued Israel and bought their freedom, brought them out to worship him, entered into an agreement with them to be their God and they to be his people. But where Jenny's dad is wrong is in assuming that this is all in the past. It's all irrelevant. It's all myths. Uh, it's all irrelevant to them. In the book of Deuteronomy, in a series of sermons, Moses makes clear that the pledged agreement between Yahweh as God and King and Israel as his people remains for the generations to come, along with the blessings and the curses that will come too if they obey or disobey. But what Israel do is they shove this into the glove compartment, don't they? they? They forget about it at best. Perhaps like Edmund in The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, uh, it makes them feel more important to pretend that Aslan doesn't exist. 
And so the first of the warning lights comes on in verse verse 1. It hits them like a tundra, but they should have known all about it if they'd been paying attention to the manual. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. You see, the source of their material blessing wasn't Baal. It had come through the gracious provision of God as he promised to bless his people through Moses. They should have known that this would be the case. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6 says this, Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks and streams and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. But, Moses goes on in verse 19, if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Uh, verse 19 is exactly what they've done, isn't it? They've left God. So we'll find pretty shortly, before we've even gone seven verses, that the brook has dried up and there isn't any bread. So that's the first warning. And here is the second warning that comes to them in Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verses 17 and 18. And the Lord said to Moses, you're going to rest with your fathers and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they're entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. On that day, I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and difficulties will come upon them. And on that day, they will ask have not these disasters come upon us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face on that day because of all their wickedness in turning to other gods. Now how does a God who is a speaking God hide his face from his people? Well, he does it by being absent from them in his word, doesn't he? And this is spelt out to another generation in the time of Amos. The days are coming declares the Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. And that is why Elijah goes. Geography is very important in 1 Kings, um, and it's very important in the story of Elijah. And that's why Elijah leaves Israel Symbolic of the, the word of blessing spoken through the prophet, leaves and goes to a widow in Phoenicia, the very centre of bell worship. The people are under God's judgment because God is silent. God's word is symbolically leaving Israel and going to Phoenicia. Now Jesus speaks about this in Luke chapter 4 verse 24 when he talks about receiving God's uh, word and uh, the crowd get uh, what he's all about. He says to them, I assure you there were many widows 
in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. So that's sort of why the crowd tried to stone Jesus, isn't it? They really like the point that Jesus is drawing from this Old Testament story of Elijah, which is that if you don't obey God's word, if you don't heed it and you are under God's judgment, then it will be taken away from you and you will not know his blessing. Uh, they didn't want to know that because whatever they did, or however they lived, they wanted to think that they were God's special people under his blessing. Now, what about us? Um, we are physically unlikely to go without God's word, aren't we? I mean, there are 50 different translations. Still today, if you go on business and you stay in chains of hotels, you'll find a Gideon's in the, uh, in the drawer next to the bed. Um, and um, you may have one or more versions on your bookshelves. But what role does it have in our lives and uh, in the lives of the church? I was very interested to read recently that the Missionary Society, uh, USPG, the United Society for the Propagation or the Declaring, the, the Giving Out of the Gospel, has changed its name from USPG to US, United Society. Their mission statement is that we believe we are all made in God's image and are able to respond to life's challenges and aspirations. I'm pretty sure they do a fantastic job uh, in terms of alleviating poverty. It's interesting that the propagation of the gospel, um, the, the, the good news that although we are dead in our sins and actually not able to live up to the aspirations that we set for ourselves and that we need the Son of God to come and die in our place so that he can make us alive by his spirit to give us fruitful lives. That's nowhere to be found on the vision, mission and values page. And so it is actually for much of the Western church, isn't it? The gospel can easily go silent. And so we have to pray that God will have mercy upon us. There will be a harvest of his word and not a famine. Closer to home, us as individuals, the evangelist Gypsy Smith drew a, a, a circle around himself in the sand and um, he said, Lord, bring revival, but bring it first in this circle. So what about us as individuals? The, um, the Boston Marketing Group says the average individual spends 55 minutes a day looking for something they've lost. I, I, I can perfectly imagine that's true. I can't find my keys and I can't find my oyster card. I can't find the toast I've just made for breakfast. I can't find my shoes, <laughs> you know, and so on. So, so it goes on, 55 minutes. Um, but how much attention do we pay to God's word? What, what do we do with our time? It's so easy not to have time to, to dwell in God's word. And if you like to have a self-imposed famine or judgment um, of God's word, you know, time is precious and then, and then we get on the tube and our Bible app cuts out because we didn't pick up a signal and then, and then we have to work through lunch and then we get back and there's all the stuff that we didn't finish in the day and, and so on and so on and so on. But we know that as we sit under God's word and obey it and Christ's words remain in us, that our lives are fruitful and we are able to resist the desert winds that come. Uh, 
as I said, I'm a Christolian. Not a million miles away from where I live is what used to be the Muller Homes, that I think is now um, University of West of England or something like that. Um, and uh, Muller housed over 10,000 orphans. And there's some incredible stories about him praying for bread and the baker knocking on the door and just delivering leftover loaves. And uh, Muller writes in his biography, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about uh, was not how much I might serve the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. When he was 71, he lived until he was 92. He retired at 70 to then go to the mission field until he was 87. <laughs> and, um, and then he, he, he came back uh, and preached again until, uh, until he died at the age of 92. But at the age of 71, he had these words of uh, uh, recommendation. Now, in brotherly love and affection, I'd give a few hints to my younger fellow believers as a way uh, in which to keep up spiritual enjoyment. It's absolutely needful in order that happiness in the Lord may continue, that the scriptures regularly be read. These are God's appointed means for the nourishment of inner man. Consider it, ponder over it, especially we should read regularly through the scriptures consecutively, not pick out a chapter here or there. If we do, we remain spiritual dwarfs. For the first four years after my conversion, I made no progress because I neglected the Bible. But when I regularly read on through the whole with reference to my own heart and soul, I directly made progress. Then my peace and joy continued more and more. Now I've been doing this for 47 years. And I always find that when I begin the Bible again, it's fresh. Thus my peace and my joy have increased more and more. Let's not impose a famine, a, a self-imposed famine on ourselves, but let's enjoy the word of God. It's worth a thousand pieces of silver and gold, isn't it? Your words are worth more than a thousand pieces of silver or gold. Now, do we believe that? Let's take hold of it. As we know, the rule is to him who has, that is, listens and obeys, more will be given. Well, placing ourselves uh, in obedience to God's word and under its authority may be the way of spiritual blessing, but it is countercultural, and so it flies in the face of Ahab and Jezebel's uh, new exciting society. So, verse 2 where do we find Elijah? Well, we find himself hiding in the Kerith ravine. The second thing our passage has to teach us then is believe God's promises. And obey his commands. Believe God's promises and obey his commands. So notice uh, what Elijah and the widow have to do in response to God's word. Uh, it's a pattern that stretches and shapes Elijah's character. And it's going to make Elijah ready for his great showdown at Mount Carmel. Um, it's going to build his character. Just as it does Moses before he faces Pharaoh. So he learns to walk in faith, step by step, uh, as his character is built by habit. He's given the promise of God to believe, 
the command of God which you must obey. The promise of God to believe and the command of God which you must obey. Verse 4. You will drink from the brook. I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. Promise. Verse 3. Leave here. Command. Verse 7. Sometime later the brook dried up. Verse 9, I've directed a woman to supply you with food. Promise. Go at once to Zarephath. Command. So he knows what God will do for him, and he knows what he must do. But walking by faith is not walking by sight. It, it's difficult, isn't it, to put all of our eggs into God's basket. There's that element of trust. Which I think is why some of the commentators want to turn the word for ravens into the word for Arabs and have Elijah fed by caravan trains of Arabs as if, as if that's any more miraculous that they're all going to pass day by day past the Kerith ravine. Or to say that the widow's neighbours were all so embarrassed that, um, that they got out the plenty that they obviously had during famine and they brought it all out to share. But the situation doesn't come to um, a satisfactory resolution in human strength, does it? In ordinary human means. Um, you know, some unclean birds bringing Elijah roadkill and a widow who's completely destitute in a world without social security um, is his quartermaster. Doesn't sit in the normal logical consequences box for us of what we can expect to unfold without God providing uh, the, uh, the unexpected. And so it is that they, they're stretched in their faith. The widow is not asked to provide out of the menu of her restaurant, but from her last meal. Faith demands that she gives everything that she has, and God will provide everything she needs. She has God's promise, and she takes him at his word. Now, I guess if you went up to the widow and you said to her, um, you know, what would you rather do? Um, would you rather walk by sight? Would you rather have the flour first? And when you have the unending amounts of flour, then you can give to Elijah from your plenty. Yes, she says, I'll have that. That's what I'd like to do. Uh, so much easier. But that's not how it works, is it? God doesn't uh, test us that way because that way lies complacency. That way doesn't prove the faithfulness of God's character. That way doesn't uh, stretch us. Uh, as we reach out and find out his sufficiency to us. Um, so what about us? Uh, well, I guess we would rather be in the same situation um, as the widow with all the plenty first. We'd rather have all our bills and expenses covered before we give to God of our first fruits. We'd rather uh, meet uh, that Christian partner before we turn down the attractive non-Christian who's interested. We'd rather know that we have the emotional energy and capacity and time to cover all of our bases and any other things that might come and, and test us before we offer to serve in that ministry at church. But God works, doesn't he, to stretch us and make us more like uh, Christ. We need to rely on him. We need to God, give God everything that we have and he will give us everything that we need. That's the way that God works. Uh, Johnny Erickson, um, Tada, who, who uh, dived into a lake and got a spinal cord injury as a teenager, was diagnosed in 2010 with, with stage 3 breast cancer. And she said this, Yes, it's alarming, 
But rest assured that Ken, her husband, and I are utterly convinced that God is going to use this to stretch our faith, brighten our hope, and strengthen our witness to others. Now there's a lady who's followed in Elijah's footsteps, has she not? And what happens? Well, we see in verse 16, don't we? The jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. And third, and uh, lastly, be assured about God's character even when you cannot understand his purposes. Be assured about God's character even when you cannot understand his purposes. And so their faith was stretched every day, was it not? Um, they had the ravens uh, that brought Elijah food, and then when that failed and Elijah moved to the widow, every day there was the flour and the oil. God is good. God is faithful. Bit by bit, they stretch out in faith, and God provides. Every day there's just a little bit more oil in the jug. There's just a little bit more flour to make the pancakes. And she can see the jars uh, on her kitchen. And then the hammer falls. And she loses her son. She loses everything. She loses her pride, her joy. She loses her financial and social future. She's, she's just rolled off Christianity Explored or, or Alpha. She's just a new convert. And then this happens. And her reaction, I guess, is the reaction that, that we so often have, do we not, when we hit trouble. Uh, verse 18, she said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? In other words, all of that stuff about the, the oil and the flour that didn't run out, it's kind of all gone now, isn't it? But because of this, because of this tragedy, this is the one thing um, that, uh, that, that marks out Elijah's dealings with her. Now, it's not a bad thing to search our consciences, is it? But it probably wasn't because of her sin. In any case, we'll, we'll never know. But why does God do this? He seems to bless her only to make the letdown or the greater. It seems, whisper it quietly, almost spiteful, does it not? And this is very often how it hits us in life, doesn't it? It hits us exactly like this. Um, and the Bible doesn't hide that. The Bible tells us straight. Sometimes it's just very hard to understand God's purposes. Um, I was speaking to a friend recently who had a lady uh, in, in his church who recovered from a brain tumour. Um, and then she had a heart operation, only to later discover she had a widening of the arteries in her brain and faced blindness. <sighs> well... In this situation, what does Elijah do? What's his reaction? Uh, does the mighty prophet just go and, with a word, raise uh, the little boy from the dead? Well, Elijah does nothing of the sort. He's, help he's as helpless as we are, isn't he? Um, and he turns to God in prayer. And he stretches himself. It says, verse, verse 19, give me your son. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, laid him on his bed cried out to the Lord 
O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? And then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. It's so different to Jesus' reaction, isn't it, with, uh, um, with Jairus' daughter. It just raises, raises her up with a word. But what here, all Elijah can do, I guess, is, is, a, is, a, is a kind of visual prayer, a physical prayer, a picture prayer. He, he, he lies on the boy. It's almost as if he's saying, may the warmth that's in my limbs come, the, the warmth and life. Uh, uh, Lord God, may you bring the same warmth and life to bear in this young boy as you raise him. All he can do is, 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 a, is a, a prayer, um, which is a physical picture prayer. And he turns to God, as we need to do, in prayer and dependence in these situations. We may not understand God's purposes, but we know God is a covenant God. We know that he is a God of commitment. We know that he is a God of loving kindness. We know that he is a God who is faithful to his character and who is our God. Well, there's a sense, I think, in, in, in which in verse 24, the woman believes because she sees the goodness of God uh, in the resurrection of her son. So often, um, we will not be those who see everything in this life. Um, we won't see it come to resolution. Very often, we won't see the minor key turn to the major key. That will be something um, that will come um, in the new heavens and the new earth. But we can trust God's word to us and his character behind his promises. George Muller again, um, he loved his wife uh, Mary um, very much and uh, when she died um, on the uh, February the 6th, 1870, he recalled how he had been strengthened the last portion of scripture I read to my precious wife was this. The Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Now if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've received grace, we're partakers of grace. And to all such he will give glory also. I said to myself with regard to the latter part, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Therefore, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again, sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she is not restored, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. And all this springs, as I've often said before, from taking God at his word. And believing what he says. So George Muller, does he not, says again these words to himself again and again. The Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. He didn't understand why those circumstances had happened in his life. But he trusted the character uh, of the one who had given his word. And our eyes can move over the years, can they not, to another son, not the widow's son, but a son who was also deeply loved, a son who was in eternal joy with the Father, 
who took the road willingly to Calvary, who paid the punishment for our sin and robbed death of its sting. It's a hint for us, isn't it? Elijah can't raise this boy to death in the way that Jesus can raise Lazarus or Jairus' Jairus's daughter. But there's a hint to us in the Old Testament, just a little uh, picture, a little um, glimpse of what is to come, of the one who conquered death, who could and did do that, so that united to faith in him, we are more than conquerors. We may not understand God's purposes, but in Christ, not even death's jaws can separate us from God's covenant love. Be warned of God's judgment according to his word. Believe God's promises and obey his commands. Be assured of God's character even when you can't understand his purposes. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word your um, very great and precious promises that you have given to us um, that are words of life. We know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Uh, help us to uh, feed ourselves with your word so that, that we might have a rich and fruitful harvest in our lives. Father, help us to trust you, um, to believe your promises and obey your commands, which we find very hard to do because we want to walk by sight and not by faith. And then Father, so often in our lives we face things that we just don't understand and that seem to us from this side of your providence that just seem to us um, sometimes spiteful, other times difficult and how we reconcile them to other things that have happened in our lives we don't know. But we know that your character uh, is good and true. Um, and we pray that you'll help us to trust in that and to see your goodness in the fullness of time. In Jesus' name, amen.